Kia ora, I'm Jessie Chang and today on The Detail, well, I'm actually out of the office and I'm at, out of all places, the Rosedale Wastewater Treatment Plant in Auckland. It's my very proud duty to declare uh, this solar array officially open. Thank you very much for coming. Norera, tēnā koutou katoa. It's New Zealand's first and currently only floating solar array. And it's definitely a sight. So I'm standing here uh, on the bank next to the wastewater pond and I can see it right in front of me. There are rows upon rows of solar panels, more than 2,700 solar panels, according to the fact sheet. And they're all joined together and they're just chilling on the surface of the water, making electricity. It's an amazing day. We, we have a beautiful sunny day. Um, the system's absolutely peaking with electricity right now and it's just so exciting to see um, the largest system in New Zealand um, being opened and, um, and working. This is the thing that we need to do for the future. We are facing the reality of, of climate change and what we're doing here in a small way through water care and through Vector is putting up an alternative to carbon Uh, creating uh, uh, energy use. In other words, using renewable energy. We'll get back to the Rosedale solar panels a bit later on, but first let's look at the hype around a renewable energy. It's pictured as the bright new future that will cut back our greenhouse gas emissions. The Labour Party recently came out all guns blazing with the pledge to reach 100% renewable energy in just 10 years' time. Labour will bring forward the 100% renewable electricity target from 2035 to 2030. We're announcing another $70 million um, additional to the $30 million for the business case to progress the work around dry year storage. This is what it will allow us to get to that 100% renewable target. But is reaching a renewable energy goal for our electricity really the best way of beating climate change? Electricity generation makes up just 4.2% of our emissions. There are much bigger sectors that we could be focusing on if the goal was to reduce emissions. What are the policies from other parties? And just how is Aotearoa doing with its climate change targets? New Zealand's greenhouse gas emissions increased by nearly 20% over 16 years. It's just gone through the roof, basically. Students are marching to demand stronger action, and councils are declaring climate emergencies. There are plenty of other countries that have managed to reduce emissions. It's, it's worth noting that our net emissions are still expected to rise through the year 2025, whereas other countries like the United Kingdom, for example, have managed to cut emissions since 1990 by a pretty drastic amount. Mark Dolder is a political reporter who covers climate change at newsroom.co.nz and he splashes cold water on any idea that New Zealand is doing well with its climate change targets. We've pledged to keep greenhouse gases at 601 million tonnes over the next decade as a part of the Paris Climate Agreement. But if our current projections are anything to go by, that's a target we're going to miss. For each tonne of emissions that we promise to reduce with our Paris target that we fail to do so, we need to buy a carbon credit. Likely we'd be buying those in 2030, and the price of those carbon credits in the international market is going to go up as um, as the supply dwindles and as the seriousness of climate change becomes apparent. So if we were currently scheduled to miss our climate target by, our Paris target, by about 106 million tons, wow. so that's 106 million carbon credits we need to buy. 
for each of those is $100 a credit, which is in, within the range that the IMF and the World Bank say is an appropriate uh, sort of cost in t come 2030, then we're going to be on the hook for $9 billion in 2030. That's a lot of money. So there's a fiscal cost to missing our climate targets as well as an environmental cost. That is huge. <laughs> I think it's something that people don't think about a lot. And I don't think that's built into things like treasury projections and so on. So all these budgets that, that parties are making out to 2030, you know, they don't factor in the fact that we're going to be on the hook for almost $10 billion or could be on the hook for almost $10 billion if they do nothing on climate. Right. Yeah. Our, our other targets are in the Zero Carbon Act. One of those says that we need to reduce our net emissions, excluding biogenic methane, so methane from mostly cows and sheep, uh, to net zero by 2050. And the biogenic methane needs to fall to uh, needs to reduce by 24 to 47 percent by 2050. I believe we're still expected to be uh, have net emissions in the realm of about 30 million tons by 2050. So actually, our record is not that great. Our record isn't that great, but we do have a few things stacked against us. One of those is that when other countries cut emissions, it's usually by transitioning away from things like coal and gas-powered electricity generation towards renewables, whereas New Zealand is already heavily, heavily reliant on renewables. In fact, 84% of our electricity already comes from renewable energy. The Labour Party wants to bump that up to 100% by 2030 and is looking at a pumped hydro system in Lake Onslow in Otago to help them get there. There have been different variations of the project since it was first brought up in 2005 by Professor Earl Bardsley from Waikato University. His latest version would be able to store 5,000 gigawatt hours, nearly the same amount of power that all of our hydro plants across the country currently produce. But it's an expensive project. There's already been $30 million allocated for a business case, and if given the green light, construction could cost about $4 billion. So what actually is a pumped hydro system? Pumped hydro is essentially a, a turning a hydroelectric station into a battery. What the plan is is to build a large sort of reservoir, man-made, above Lake Onslow. Uh, then they'll be able to pump water from the lake into the reservoir. And when there's a dry year, when it doesn't rain a lot and our hydroelectric stations are running a little bit dry, or when power prices are peaking, you'd be able to let some of that water down through the pipes, uh, generating electricity back into the lake then you'd be able to pump it back up again when power prices are cheap and it's easy to do so. And, and where have we got to with that business case? Uh, it was just announced a month or two ago, so I think it'll take a while for it to actually run. Um, after that, then the government would have to make a decision on it. You'd have to build the thing. And even after it's all built, it's uh, expected to take a year or two to actually pump the water from the lake into the reservoir so it's full. So it's going to be quite a while away before you'd actually be able to take full advantage of it. Okay, so this is a very big, long-term kind of investment. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, it's fairly transformative in what it would do. It, it would have the ability to pump out an immense amount of power when there's a dry year and when our hydroelectric stations aren't producing as much electricity as they otherwise might. Uh, but it, it's, you know, the amount of money and, and the amount of time that we'd put into it is just as big as... as you know, the benefits we'd reap from it. There's been a lot of confusion, a lot of different statements put out there in terms of if we go ahead and build this, 
uh, pumped hydro storage, it will increase power prices. That pumped hydro, $30 million being spent on just a business case. And by the way, all that happens, electricity prices go up. And that's what Ms Ardern's own experts are telling her. Dealing with our drought years, which is what pumped hydro does, and moving us to 100% renewables actually brings the price down. What, what is the deal there? So I think there's a, a couple of things being conflated here. The Interim Climate Change Committee was tasked with looking at whether the government's current goal of a 100% renewable electricity generation by 2035 was viable. They looked at that and found if you do that by just trying to replace our fossil fuel systems with renewable generators, um, that's not going to be an effective use of money. Essentially, most renewables are dependent, are, are less reliable than fossil fuels. So with fossil fuels, if you have a bunch of coal sitting there, you can burn it whenever you need to. Mm. For hydroelectric stations, you need rain. For solar power, you need sun. For wind turbines, you need wind. So the concern is that you'd build more generation than you need on an average day so that you have enough uh, there for when it is dry or when it is cloudy or when it's not windy. The cost of building that would mean that consumers would pick up the price uh, to quite a big extent. But pumped hydro is, is sort of a way of getting around that by building a hydroelectric station that isn't dependent on rain and, you know, sort of solving that dry year problem while still remaining renewable. So... So uh, on the power prices, the pumped hydro probably wouldn't increase our power prices. It depends a little bit on who picks up the bill for actually constructing that or where the split is between electricity companies and the government on that. But for the most part, that's a way of... And the Interim Climate Change Committee said this is... Pumped hydro is a, vi a, a possible way of getting around that power prices increasing in order to get to 100% renewable. As for the industry, although it's behind renewable energy, the Sustainable Energy Forum, Meridian Energy and Genesis Energy have all expressed concern about whether Lake Onslow is the best option. I think there's a lot of um, hope around that project. I think the industry is by and large behind the idea of renewables in general and you know reducing our emissions from the electricity sector. It would be a big deal for New Zealand to be able to be the first country to say our electricity is 100% renewably generated um, and, and mostly emissions-free. Uh, geothermal is renewable, but not entirely emissions-free. But I, I think in, in, in terms of how it affects their specific operations, it does depend a lot on you know, that balance between who's paying, footing the bill for, for the scheme itself um, and, and who's sort of reaping the benefits without necessarily having to, to pitch in. And who will be picking up the bill is still undecided. While Lake Onslow would be the biggest renewable energy project in the country by a long shot, it's not the only one around. We have a beautiful sunny day. Um, the system's absolutely peaking with electricity right now. And it's just so exciting to see um, the largest system in New Zealand uh, being opened and, um, and working. That's Regeer Simons from Vector PowerSmart, and he's talking about the country's first floating solar array on a wastewater pond on Auckland's North Shore. We've seen this overseas a lot. Um, we've, we've done this many times over in the Pacific ourselves. Um, and the fact that it's not just the largest system, but then it's also floating, um, you know, on top of that is, is, is a great technical feat. And I think it is, mm. that's, that's quite an exciting combination. Just looking out there, it looks to me like a, like a massive mat with all these solar panels that you could almost step on, not that you'd want to. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so it's, it's got sort of over 3,000 pontoons. 
um, over, like you stated, um, 2,700 panels, and they're all interconnected, and they're built in, in four quarters on land and slid into the water as we, as we build them. And then they're actually pulled along by boat into location where you'll see sort of 60 anchors which have been placed by GPS. Yeah. And um, we interconnect them with walkways, and then the whole thing is stable, and we can come in and service it whenever we require um, and, and, and it can move with any kind of weather conditions. So, yeah, great, great result. Victor Powersmart built the array for Watercare and it officially opened last week. Regia wouldn't tell me how much it costs, saying that's commercially sensitive, but by all means, it is impressive. The one hectare array will generate more than 1,400 megawatt hours, enough electricity to power 200 homes. We're not at the stage yet where it will feed into the national grid, but it will power the Rosedale plant, reducing carbon emissions by 145 tonnes a year. It's the perfect blend of maximising space, cutting down the carbon footprint and treating wastewater all at the same time. It's just part of um, the diverse sort of um, energy we need to have um, in, in, in any country really, and you're seeing that worldwide, and it's great to see it here. So why do you think it's taken so long to reach New Zealand? Um, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's probably a, a lot of ways you can answer that question. Um, in other countries, we've definitely seen the governments jumping in. Um, I think that that makes a, a difference. I think, um, you know, and it's just been a slower uptake, and, and it comes down to a cost point that people are happy to pay um, commercially. Regier says that is changing, but the question is whether it's solar panels or pumped hydro, should the government be putting so much focus on renewable energy? So that's a really good question, and I think there's sort of two different parts of, of, of that question. One is, if you're going for 100% renewable, is pumped hydro the best way to do that, or are there other options? And I think that most people would agree, actually, we want to try and diversify our, our options, not just put all the our eggs in one basket behind pumped hydro, but look at things like green hydrogen, look at things like offshore wind, look at things like solar, like the Greens have, have um, proposed. Then there's the separate question of, you know, should we be targeting electricity generation in you know as our main focus? Electricity generation makes up just 4.2% of our emissions. There are much bigger sectors that we could be focusing on if the goal was to reduce emissions. Agriculture makes up 48% of our emissions. Transport makes up 19%. And you will need to electrify. You'll need more electricity generation, and you'd like that to be renewable, in order to reduce emissions in these sectors. So part of agriculture's emissions uh, comes from coal boilers used to process dairy, for example. Likewise, transport emissions come from the fact that we drive petrol cars instead of electric vehicles. So they're linked, but if you're saying... If you just say we're aiming for 100% renewable by 2030 and you don't say anything about agriculture or transport, then you're not really being serious about reducing emissions. And what has the um, Interim Climate Change Committee recommended the government to prioritise? Did they say renewable energy was the best way to go? Uh, No. In the end, they recommended this investigation of pumped hydro that's now being undertaken. But if pumped hydro turns out not to be viable... They said that the goal shouldn't be 100% renewable. They said it was already likely to be, the electricity generation would already be in sort of the 90%, 95% range renewable by 2035, and that there were much more cost-effective ways and much more sort of bigger, bigger chunks to take out of our emissions profile that we could focus on in the interim. Right. And what, what are those? 
those would be things like transport, like agriculture, uh, and like industrial process heat. So all the um, fossil fuel fired uh, in factories, essentially, um, that use fossil fuels to produce heat and in order to process things, whether it be dairy or steel or what have you. So have any of the political parties kind of really looked at those other sectors? Most parties are not really dealing with the, the big problem, which is agriculture. Very few parties have a way of, of um, reducing emissions from cows and sheep, methane emissions, which is you know a, a very a significant chunk of our emissions profile. Um, the best way of doing that at the moment is putting a price on, on those emissions through putting it into the emissions trading scheme. So that means for every... Um, ton of greenhouse gases emitted, uh, the person who sort of owns those cows or owns those sheep would have to pay some money in order to buy a carbon credit, either from the government or from a forestry sort of provider who's, who manages to sink greenhouse gases in response. Um, the problem is that agriculture isn't in the emissions trading scheme right now. It's currently now scheduled to enter in 2025. Um, and even then, farmers will have a 95% discount on how much they have to pay for their emissions. So it's expected that each farmer will have to pay, on average, 0.1 cents for every kilo of milk solids that they produce. If the goal is to make it more and more expensive to pollute and therefore make it more and more, you know, incentivize turning away from polluting, then 0.1 cents per kilo of milk solids is, is not that incentive that you're looking for. But agriculture is a sensitive subject. Toll on farmers starting to show. We have an open letter this morning to the government that talks of levels of frustration felt by the farming community. Baker Ag, an agri-business consultancy, has written telling them the government's environmental policy approach is undermining business confidence and mental health. Uh, the government has turned the public against farmers and they ask them to work more closely with the sector. A farming mother told me yesterday that at a local school here, uh, one of the teachers asked all the kids, to, those who had farming parents, put their hands up and then proceeded to vilify farmers for being uh, environmental vandals and then went on to tell them that they uh, should all be vegans and not eat red meat. Labor has pledged $50 million to help farmers transition into sustainable farming practices and cope with growing compliance requirements. The Greens are pledging $297 million, the Māori Party $300 million. Act goes so far as to oppose the Zero Carbon Act. New Zealand First does support the Act, but there's no money specifically for climate-friendly farming. And National plans to lessen restrictions for farmers, not add them. A pledge to scrap the RMA, to review or repeal nine water standards, and to alter the Zero Carbon Act. A big commitment too. Judith Collins won't bring farming under the emissions trading scheme. I'm not going to do to our farmers what no other country does to theirs, OK? The supposed rural-urban divide was a major talking point last election. Ms Collins wants to revive it. Our policies are very much about doing things better but working with farmers and not demonising them. And for transport... The Greens have announced a transport policy that's quite comprehensive. It includes banning the import of petrol vehicles after probably 2030, essentially whenever the UK decides to do so, and they're looking at that now. It also includes a pretty robust plan for building up intercity rail to replace the need for car trips or plane trips, and uh, sort of cycle superhighways is what they call them, but essentially big cycleways linking suburbs to city centres. Uh, that would be central government funded, so local government wouldn't have to foot the bill for that. And then local government could build sort of cycleways between suburbs and so on and so forth. 
to create almost like a public transport system of cycleways. National has focused on transport, but the goal they've come up with of 80,000 EVs on the road by 2025 is essentially what we're already projected to have. So there's not a lot of work that they'll have to do in order to make that um, easier. They don't have a lot of plans for incentivizing the uptake of electric vehicles, and um, neither does Labour and neither do any of the other parties. So it's not really looking very transformative then? I wouldn't say I'm optimistic on our climate progress so far and our climate progress into the future either. Do you think that COVID-19 have made these things harder to achieve? I think COVID-19 should have made these things easier to achieve for two reasons. One, we saw the impact of a public health crisis and the way that our government and our you know, people could respond to it quickly and effectively. That should inspire us for how we tackle climate change. The second way, a reason that COVID-19 should have made it easier is the government borrowed $50 billion in order to rejuvenate the economy. In other countries, we're seeing that money being put towards things like massive investment in solar panels, mm. uh, massive investment in electric vehicles. In New Zealand, we were promised a green recovery, but essentially there's no emissions reductions that we're going to see out of it. And that's a real shame. It's not often that the government borrows $50 billion. Mm. You know, the next time we do that in response to an economic crisis, it might be 10 years away, it might be 20 years away. And we don't have that long to respond to climate change. I think climate policy is a bit complicated, as this conversation has shown. You know, We're talking about things like pumped hydro. We're talking about things like electric vehicles. People think climate, they think the environment, they think polluted riverways, and they think smokestacks, but that's not all that it is. You know, in New Zealand, it's mostly cows. And as long as people don't really understand the way in which we are polluting the environment and the way in in which we can stop doing so, it's much easier for them to fall for rhetoric like someone saying that the climate change is their generation's nuclear-free moment, uh, even if that rhetoric isn't backed by action. That's it for today. I'm Jessie Chang. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Veal and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Mark Dolder and Regeer Simons. Matewa. Wa.